Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peter. And this is episode 123 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 123, we are going to talk a little bit about the meet that just was uh, recently. I think it was just last weekend. The uh, Pacific Northwest District Meet Number 1 in Madras, Oregon. We're going to talk about uh, one particular question that came up in my room in room 1 that I want to get Scott's thoughts on. And if you are following along with your Bibles at home, it is regarding Acts chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, and various other things. And actually, if you want to pull open maybe chapter one as well, that might be useful. But then we're going to spend the bulk of today's episode talking about a an email from our friend Luke from uh, CMD. Uh, he was replying with a couple of, as he does with all of his emails, very thoughtful and very interesting questions and ideas and so forth. And so I want to dig into those uh, because I think Luke's email is great. <laughs> we, lo- we love hearing from Luke. We love hearing from every listener, but it's it's great when uh, there are folks like Luke who put a lot of thought into their uh, their messages and so forth. And so I want to kind of dive into that and then talk a little bit about, you know, the bit of the future of quizzing and philosophies around such stuff and where we go from here. So let's dive in. So um, let's talk about Madras. So yeah, the Madras meet for, you know, most folks, it was a five, six hour drive, um, but I cheated um, and I feel no... Uh, I feel no guilt over cheating. Um, so I, I, the, the, the weather right now is terrible in the Pacific Northwest in the sense that it's gorgeous and beautiful uh, because it is overcast and raining and gross and all that kind of stuff. But a week ago, it was clear skies if you don't count the smoke. And so let's see, Cuddy and Xander and I and Evie uh, flew down uh, to Madras, which was fantastic, and uh, got picked up at the airport. The meet was over the weekend, and we were fortunate enough to be able to stay uh, Saturday night, so we were able to worship in uh, at the Madras Church Sunday morning before we flew back. And But the meet itself was awesome and also terrifying at the same time. So when we, a, a lot of the teams arrived around dinner time or so, give or take a little bit. And we had a good collection of of teams, not everybody, but a good collection of teams uh, hang out at the church around seven o'clock on Friday night, just for some fellowship and so forth. And also to experience me freaking out because uh, I only had one complete set of seats. Uh, Despite the fact that I was absolutely confident that I packed everything, I only had one set. And so... Uh, we, Christine had her set from, from, uh, Madras. And so we were like, okay, well we can, we can run two rooms, but we really need a third room. And so there was this moment where Scott, you will know what this feels like. I actually did have a bag of Acme seats and started pulling out the bag of Acme seats. And there was this moment where my entire being just sort of sank a little bit, like two inches, got two inches shorter. (laughs) you know, out of depression um, of pulling out this this uh, set of seats and thinking like, oh no, I'm going to have to put this together and figure out how it works and hope that it does work and so forth. And theoretically it did the last time it was used, like, I don't know, three, four, five years ago or something like that. Um, but uh, there was definitely, and of course we were not under time pressure. This was, this was Friday and the first quiz was Saturday morning. So, you know, I had time to figure it out, but there was definitely a moment of... Um, oh no, 
uh, what are we what are we going to do? Fortunately, it turns out that there was an unpacking snafu that happened at the airport and the remaining sets of seats were just by the airplane when we were unloading. So the next morning, very early Saturday morning, we swung by the airport in a last ditch effort just to double check. And sure enough, found them, got them set up. Everything was fine. The meat worked just great. Um, and off to the races we went, but it was definitely kind of a heart stopping moment. The quizzing was fantastic. Um, we definitely had a slow start on Saturday with some of the quizzes being uh, a little bit heavier on the no jump side of things than than what I was hoping for. I think that was probably a case of uh, some teams arriving very, very late on Friday. I think some teams arrived in town like around uh, 11 o'clock or a little bit after. And then we had our first quiz pretty early the, the next morning. But by about the the third, second or third quiz of prelims, I think things were trucking along just fine. And of course the quizzing got better and better throughout the day. Uh, had a lot of uh, great fellowship opportunities. We did have a little bit of a statistical hiccup in terms of technological kind of stuff. Um, Joel was running our stats from afar and it was so great that he was doing that, but he ran into a little bit of a Google sheet issue, some sort of bug, and he couldn't, uh, couldn't get, uh, individual averages to, uh, get worked out in time. And so we were giving him a couple of minutes of extra time. So Ethan, uh, went up and told jokes for a couple of minutes right before I went up and announced, uh, the final positions of folks and, and handed out awards. So that was great. Uh, fantastic to be able to see everybody. And, and, uh, my, my son, Alexander was able to quiz master a little bit. Uh, and of course, Andrew and Cuddy were fantastic in terms of their, you know, quiz mastery. And of course we had some great volunteers for scorekeepers, uh, in the different rooms. So it was just great that everybody was able to be there. Uh, and of course the next meet is coming up not that far away. It's in November, middle of November. I think it's the week before Thanksgiving or something like that. So that's only what, like three, what, three weeks away. And it's like three or four weeks away from where we are right now. So not very much time and it will be at Lighthouse. And so very excited about that. But uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about and, and pick uh, Scott's brain on was a situation that came up in my room middle of the day, give or take a little bit. Uh, the question is from Acts chapter two, verse 15. And the question is, who are not drunk? And the answer is these people. So super straightforward question. The word drunk is a universal, unique word. Uh, these people directly replaces the word who, the interrogative. So, I mean, it's a super straightforward uh, question, fairly easy uh, in terms of, you know, if you've got the material in front of you, but the quizzer who jumped on it started answering, but they said they didn't quite say these people and what they said and specifically how they said it and the order in which they said it is somewhat important. So let me kind of walk through what happened. And then I want to hand things over to Scott, who will tell us what the truth is. So they said, and again, this is this is my based on my memory. So I'm, I'm not going to get this 100% accurate to what actually happened. But I think this is pretty close. They started by saying those gathered. Uh, instead of saying these people, they said maybe one or two things that were synonymous with those gathered-ish, but they never said the phrase these people. And then they said the crowd and then continued to talk about various synonymous things and repeating things of those gathered uh, and the crowd, right? And so 
I ended up counting them incorrect after they said the crowd, because looking at 215, you know, Peter's talking, these people are not drunk. Peter is referring to these people. He's referring to uh, the folks that the crowd were actually questioning about, right? So, you know, like in verse 12, amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Um, and uh, some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And the crowd refers to those who are doing the making fun of and being amazed and perplexed and so forth. And if you want to get even more specific, uh, you're talking about, you know, folks referred to or defined in verses 9 and 10, right? And 11 as well. Um, so, okay, fine. He says the crowd. I'm saying my ruling was he's incorrect because the crowd is different than these people. And it was challenged. And it was challenged in a, in, a, in a very interesting way. The challenge was effectively, well, he was not uh, fully incorrect. You should have given him the remainder of his time to be able to get to these people. And therefore, you should throw out the question or do the question. The problem that I've got is these people refers to either the believers, a group numbering about 120 from verse 115, or it refers to the 12. Now, I think it actually refers to the believers, a group numbering about 120, because it's referring, like in verse 14, you're talking about Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. The idea was that, like, you imagine this group of 120 uh, doing the talking in all the different languages, and then Peter with the 11. So essentially the 12 get up there and address what's going on with Peter being the spokesperson for the addressing of what's going to happen or what has happened thing, right? So the issue that I had though was in the moment, I couldn't find anything that would let me kind of take something from the rule book and attach it to these people to not reject the challenge. But at the same, so ultimately what I did was I chose to redo the question, but I think I was wrong in making that ruling. I think my original ruling was incorrect. I think my accepting of the challenge was incorrect, but I'm having a hard time hanging my hat on something specific to justify my current belief system. So Scott, help me out. Okay, let me try. So going back to when the quizzer was answering, I think it's it's useful to highlight a principle, which is um, you want to be abundantly sure um, about counting a quizzer incorrect before the 30 seconds has elapsed. Because if you're ever wrong, you have to redo the whole question, even if they they either, I mean, even if they it was clear to you that they weren't going to get the right answer in 30 seconds, that, that fact would be irrelevant, right? And so if you call a quizzer incorrect at second 29 um, and your reasoning for calling them incorrect was not correct, you have to throw out the question, even if, um, you know, the answer was 14 words and they couldn't have said 14 words in one second. Right. And so that's why by the, by the time I was, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not done quiz mastering, but I could be, by the time I was almost done quiz mastering, I was almost never counting a quizzer incorrect before the 30 seconds had elapsed. Like I had to know that they were clearly in a different context or gave a completely wrong answer. Uh, just because to me, that risk of having to redo a question, even when I know they wouldn't have gotten it right, but I have to redo it in that. Um, I didn't want that to happen. Um, so where do I want to go with this? Um, I, let's look at the question. So who are not drunk? The answer being these people. Um, this is a 
not the greatest question to write. Uh, it's very clear and it, it tests a portion of the material that probably is pretty hard to test otherwise. So it, it's good on those counts. But the answer is these people, um, which means if a quizzer gets up and says vague things about vague groups of people, which it sounds like they did, it's very hard to say, like, did they give enough to be counted correct? Did they give enough to be counted incorrect? Did they give enough to put them in a different context? Um, it's very hard when your answer is vague, um, doesn't have proper nouns, adjectives, um, because you can't really be sure. Master. Um, and so I think there are some different ways that I would write this question to try to avoid some of that. For example, you could you could write who are not drunk as you suppose, um, meaning if a quizzer jumps on who are not drunk, they can't just kind of stumble around the, these people with a vague answer. They at least have to get the as you suppose in addition, right? They have to finish the question. Um, now that is kind of ancillary to the specific ruling, but that is a, a different way that I might write this question if I was a question. Uh, but now jumping back into the quiz master shoes, I think you said they said something like those gathered. Um, I don't think that's enough to either say that they are incorrect um, or say that they're out of context. Now, the word gathered appears nine times in the material, none of them in context to 215. But I think those gathered, and those gathered is not a phrase. That, um, but even if it did, it wouldn't seem like it's significant enough um, to count them out of context. So I'm definitely not using out of context is any reason for a ruling here. Now, when they say the crowd, I think I would have done the same thing and considered that to be incorrect information. Remember, the current rulebook does not specify any difference between a quizzer quoting or giving an answer or giving a definitive answer or anything like that. Um, so you're just evaluating the information that they say and determining if any of it you deem to. I think the crowd would be incorrect. Um, I think these people is referring to... Um, the believers, a group numbering about 120 from 115, because uh, in the beginning of chapter two, the all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. I think that's referring to that group of believers numbering about 120. And it's the speaking in tongues that was the reason that the crowd thought, like, maybe these people are drunk. And Peter's like, hey, they're not drunk. Um, and so I would consider the quizzer saying the crowd, um, definitely not taking them out of context. And not just because it's in context, it's a fairly non-significant. But I would consider that, consider that to be incorrect um, for the question, who are not drunk. Um, do you want to jump in with anything here before I get to the challenge part of it? Well, I mean, I don't disagree, but part of it is what we're talking about. The struggle with this is a, a more vague phrase and a more specific phrase, right? So the crowd is fairly vague, but it is much less vague than these people. So let's say, and of course you were talking about the crowd is definitely in context. I mean, it's it's in one verse above in, in 2.14. So let's say we're talking about like, uh, you're asking a question, uh, let's say raised his voice and addressed who or something like that, right? And so the answer is the crowd. And somebody said these people or those people or or the people or something like that instead of the crowd. Now, I wouldn't count them in incorrect immediately if they said the people, right? Um, because I would say, well, I think the people is a very slightly less specific synonymous meaning to the crowd, not synonymous enough. Right. Um, and I hate being, I hate that phrase, right. Cause you know, um, therefore it's not synonymous if it's not enough, but essentially the people is a 
a not incorrect but not correct enough paraphrase of the crowd. However, when you flip that, I think that is not the case, right? So for example, if the answer was the people and you answer the crowd, well, can you can you work it the other way around, right? So are you yeah, I'm not even sure how to describe it. Oh, I guess really the, the, the key point that I'm trying to point out here is the crowd is more specific than these people. And I know, and you know, and we know that these people are referring to probably the 120. I could see the argument that it's referring to the 12. I think it's actually the 100, 120 from 115. Um, but it's that because the crowd is more specific than these people, that's where I start to go like, okay, that's where I can call it incorrect. But if those words, if those phrases were inverted, I don't think I could work it the same way. I think if I'm understanding you correctly, I would, if the question had been raised his voice and addressed who, with the answer being the crowd, if the quizzer had first said these people, I don't think that that's incorrect information because it is more vaguer than the crowd. I don't really know yet. More um, vague. But in this case... More vaguer, yeah. Yeah, it is but in this case, more vaguer, yeah. <laughs> um, in this case, they the crowd is specific enough that I would count them incorrect. Um, Going the opposite direction, yeah. Speak. Right. Right. And that's part of the problem. So, like, th it, it would be like if 215 was them are not drunk, or, well, like, that's terrible. They are not drunk, right? Um, right. if you, prov they is about as vague as you can possibly get. Right. So then it's like, well, now I want a, it's a pronoun. Therefore I want you to define, I can say clarify they or something like that. Right. As, assuming that the antecedent is within context, but, but putting the pronoun rule off to a side for a moment, you can't get more uh, vague than they really, um, these people is less vague, but still awfully, awfully vague. And I think that's where, the struggle comes in, in terms of like, based on what the quizzer said, uh, I have to do this really significant interpret. I feel like it's a significant interpretation on my part of, of the implications of these people versus the crowd. I would rather have something that's way more just black and white in the text. Right. But I mean, if the question is written this way and you know, you're not, I don't think you're supposed to alter it as the quiz master if it's valid. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I think you, you, you are required to interpret who are these people and who is the crowd, right? Um, to the best of your ability. If you can't interpret who it's referring to, I think you could potentially consider the question to be tricky or misleading. Um, but short of that, um, I think if you can figure out who it's referring to, um, and you can see here that they refer to different groups of people, then the crowd is incorrect information for the required answer. Yeah, no, that really helps me out. When you're saying tricky or misleading, because then it's like, okay, well, is this question tricky or misleading? I think the answer is no. I think it's abundantly clear. And then if you're reading the whole of chapter two, these people can't refer to the crowd. I would agree with that. The only problem is, well, <laughs> okay, now I'm confusing myself again, except there are two crowds. I mean, real, really, there are two crowds. Would you consider a group of 120 people a crowd? I definitely would, right? It's just that there was another crowd of a whole bunch of other people who were not the 120. Now, the phrase, the crowd, from 214 refers to the not group of 120, but the group of 120 is definitely a crowd. Yeah, but I don't think that that's, that's relevant at all. Mm. We know that there are different groups of people. Well, sure, but... I don't disagree with you, right? But 
I'm just, I'm playing devil's advocate here. If I say there's group A and there's group B and I say, uh, and group A said, hi, Griffin or something. And I'm like, well, who said hi, Griffin? And you said the group, right? You are not incorrect. You're just not, you're not specific enough yet, right? But if I say there was a group here and a crowd there, um, and let's say that one group is 100 people the other, and the crowd is 100 people. Those, are, I mean, crowd and group are synonymous in that, in, that, in that context. They are synonymous words that refer to, you know, one group of 100 people and a different group of 100 people. Are you incorrect because you used a vague word that happened to, in that particular context, refer to a different group? I, I don't know. That starts to get kind of squishy, uh, squicky to me. Sure. Um, I do see that argument. Um, a couple things. Now, I don't think I have the most recent version of the rulebook, but I don't see the word. The word synonym doesn't appear. Yeah, it you're appears right. One. I'm pretty sure it doesn't and appear. So, and so, I don't know. I don't know that I could say, well, the descriptor of the crowd, or the, the, the phrase you gave me, the crowd, while it appears in 214, um, could logically be a descriptor of the group refer to in 115 to 1 to 3 to 4 and because of that it's not incorrect when all of those references are frankly i mean they're out of context and so it's kind of the quizmaster is allowed to go out of context to see who um phrases are referring to but it seems almost not allowed to go to use phrases from a different context that are synonymous to say a quizzer is not yet incorrect right i phrased that very well so then here's the thing would you i mean fortunately the ruling on this particular question didn't make i i don't think it made one lick of difference in terms of like where the because we were in brackets so individual um uh you know team scores didn't matter it was it was all about placement and i don't think it i don't think the 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 teams were anywhere close to each other in terms of the final analysis of the quiz i if i'm remembering the the quiz correctly so fortunately it wasn't that big of a deal but i'm like imagining well what if it was championships and it's question 20 and all three teams are tied and this ruling makes the difference between first place and second place or something like that um gosh i'd love to be able to have something that was way more definitive um and I'm, I'm starting to feel ru- I mean, more icky about this question. The rule book says, and inf- you know, quizzer is correct when their answer contains the information requested. Um, so again, the cleanest way would be to wait the 30 seconds because if the quizzer doesn't say these people, um, it doesn't really matter how close they are, right? If they didn't give you the information requested, um, you can't count them. Right. But would you count um, them correct if they said the people? I probably would. What if they said uh, those gathered? Um, no. And it doesn't matter if you know that these people were gathered because I need these people. I don't need a different way of describing you. I didn't, I didn't request that you tell me that you identify the group of people. I requested that you say these people. Sure. But then what if you said, um, I'm trying to think of a, a, a synonym of people, um, the, the herd, the horde, the, I mean, all these are way more specific. Um, the community, the, 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 the bodies, the, the humans, <laughs> these humans, right. if they, if they right? said these humans, I might, I might accept it. Okay. But, but not the, this crowd or the <clears throat> crowd. No, I wouldn't. 
Interesting. Because to me, the, these humans are l less synonymous -er <laughs> than than the crowd. It seems to me like the crowd and these people are closer. Like like crowd versus, you know, group of people um, seems a lot closer to me than, you know, collection of humans. Sure. But I think, I mean, I think my rulings are definitely a lot more based on verbatim material. But to me, the key, like, sure, these we can look through the material and find out who these is specifically referring to. But I really need the word people. And to me, if if you give me a word that is very synonymous with people, which I would consider humans to be, um, I'm, I'm inclined to accept your answer. But if you give me a different way of describing this group of people, even if it's a correct description, you're kind of giving me a different thing. Hmm. Like a, a crowd has meaning um, different than just people. And I didn't ask for that. And it doesn't matter if that's um, a correct way of describing them. It's not the information requested for this question. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Because I because I, I don't think we're quizzing on, I mean, these aren't essay thematic questions, right? And so um, this one, you know, albeit not the greatest question because it asks for something vague, but I need the word people. Um, and I'm going to want something extremely synonymous to the word people. And crowd is not synonymous to the word people it's a different descriptor hmm. all right well shall we uh, move on to luke's email do we want to hit the challenge real quick oh yeah 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 i sorry i didn't mean to cut you off there because we, we we were talking about this before we started recording and then we're like we should start recording hmm. um i was making the point that i think it 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 does matter what you ruled um and what you said um to justify your ruling and then also what the specific challenge was uh and your response was well it doesn't matter if i made the right ruling with the incorrect reasoning um i shouldn't change it then um, just because what i announced was incorrect reason um similarly let's say you made the wrong ruling um and then someone challenged with terrible logic but their challenge jogged something in your brain and you were like wait i made the wrong ruling we also think that you should just change your ruling right it doesn't yeah. matter that the, the challenge was not the reason that you are now changing your ruling um but i think if you had if you had said hey i'm ruling them incorrect because they said those gathered first and that is incorrect um, and then the quizzer challenges and says hey i don't think those gathered is incorrect information i think it's not the right answer yet but it's definitely not incorrect and they, well if you you hear that and then you're like wait I think I'm wrong that those gathered is incorrect information, but I think actually uh, the crowd is incorrect information. I think you could then overrule the challenge and say, hey, I know I announced that my reasoning was those gathered. Um, this this challenge has made me think about it. And I think that the ruling is correct, but it's because they said the crowd, not because they said I think that would be totally fine, right? Mm -hmm. um, but did did the challenge so do you remember how you announced your initial ruling? um i think i announced my ruling by saying the crowd is a different answer than these people and i think i think i said something like these people are referring to the people who were who were not the crowd right um which is yep. why peter even talks about it and so because the crowd refers to a different group of people uh, it is incorrect information, so I have to count you incorrect. Um, but then the challenge was, well, the crowd is actually not necessarily incorrect. He sh he had, let's say, 10 more seconds of time or whatever it was, right? Uh, therefore, you should have given him more time. Therefore, you should throw out the question. So I don't know if this is how it happened, but if all the challenge was is 
they stated the crowd is not necessarily incorrect. You, you gave me no new information. Like that's exactly what I was weighing, and I deemed it to be incorrect information. And you have to just like tell me why you think it's not. Um, so I'm I'm definitely not accepting that challenge. If you're well, not okay, going okay, to well, give okay, me but keep in mind when we say the word "accept the challenge," what we're not saying is I agree to the logic of the challenge, but rather more. I'm, I'm changing my ruling. Right. And that goes back to what right, we were right. talking about before. Right. So like, maybe I think your challenge is still is, is invalid, but it's still causing me to reconsider and change my rule. Right. Um, I, I quiz mastered a lot of really, really good quizzers and, um, it was pretty common for the ruling to hinge on one judgment call. Um, I would often announce that that was the reason, um, that I made a ruling and then the quizzer would challenge and say, like, I disagree with your judgment call and your, you know, the ruling should change, mm-hmm. um, which was always a terrible challenge because I literally told you, this is what I was evaluating. You know, that's what I was evaluating. And you have to like make your case for why you think my judgment call was wrong. Um, and yeah, if you're not bringing me new information, there's not something else that I'm going to start thinking about. Right. Um, Cause I think this case there are, there could be multiple vectors in play when making the ruling. Mm-hmm. So the quizzer only addressing one of them still could jog your brain about other aspects. Right. Um, but I find that to be very common where it's, it's pretty clear that there's one specific thing the quiz master is pondering. And then the challenge is made saying like, I disagree with what you, um, which is almost never going to be accepted. Well, okay. On the merits of the challenge, right. But the challenge itself might cause something to jog loose in the quiz master's brain. Right. And I'm making the assumption that the quiz master has thought of it. Sure. Sure. Um, um, which is, is almost true in some cases true. and, it's almost never true. Like I've, I, I've, I've never thought of everything. Like I, I may feel like I've thought of as, as much as I can think of, but there's always something I haven't thought of. Really? Oh, sure. Probably. I mean, I haven't, well, I haven't I mean, considered like every possible angle on a particular question. Now, I mean, yeah, but that that's talking about it in the esoteric, like sure. The chances not, that you have not thought of something that can materially affect your ruling is very low. Okay. Sure. Now that you know, when you put that, that suffix on, then I agree. Right. Like I've, right. I've thought of, I thought of everything materially relevant to make it, making a judgment call. Then it's like, okay, yeah, the probability is very low that I've skipped something. And I mean, you watch international quizzes and challenges that happen um they're rarely bringing up something that the quiz master hasn't thought of right they're they're just they have a different opinion about the judgment call that was made and i often see um cases made right like right. um and and quiz masters don't always say everything that they used right so a quizzer can't know and can't know that they're saying exactly what the quiz master had just considered um but i off like i see challenges that are are well thought out of and you can see that they're trying to cover their bases what are the ways that this judgment call could be thought of i think that's what you want to do right because right, um usually it's pretty obvious when a quiz master just doesn't like has missed right um versus hey we're all struggling over the same judgment call here um and you know you've got to make your case of why you think that a different judgment call has been made i think i feel like that's most challenges most challenges are not like correcting something that the master flat missed right all right well ready to go to luke's email 
Yeah. All right. So Luke replied uh, to us and said, I'm just going to quote sections here because I think it's he writes it really well. So I'm just going to quote him verbatim for the most part here. Uh, Should we and by we, I mean, quizzing as an organization, consider constructing a rule book that is meant to be read and understood by someone without the tribal knowledge about quizzing? Or should we try and change some of the framework of how quizzing currently functions? Uh, for example, uh, changing to push-button quizzing, etc., as mentioned in episode 120. I guess at the root of the question would be, do we want to attempt to assimilate others into the Bible quizzing culture? Or do we want to adjust how Bible quizzing functions in order to accommodate more people? Or is the answer somewhere in between, which I feel like it is? So lots of questions there. Uh a lot of really good thinking going on here. Uh, Scott, what are your thoughts? I think this is this is very well thought out. And it's I think it's the right way to think about this because um, the existence of something tribal is not it's not bad per se, right? Like I think there there might be a considerable overlap between things that are tribal and almost like branding or niches um, that can be positive in a way that it's a differentiator. Um, but we don't want anything tribal to be exclusionary because it's not known right or an impediment to to participating because it's critical to know the knowledge that is not that is tribal right and by tribal we mean it's it's known by um long time participants but it's not clearly written down and stated um and would that be a good description griffin yeah i think i think that's a good way of calling it i wouldn't say critical i would soften that a bit i would say anything that would influence somebody's uh, capability of scoring and participating effectively or as effectively at a meet, right? So, I mean, it's a far lower bar than critical, but but anything that influences somebody's ability to fairly uh, interact and compete at a meet. So, for example, if you happened to at your meet always start each quiz with a prayer versus um, another meet where their culture is not to do that right like i don't care if that's written down anywhere right <laughs> like like if if a quiz master wants to start each quiz with a short prayer um great that's cool and i've done that at a couple of meets and I don't see any problem with I, I I don't see any problem with that not existing in the rule book or or not even being referenced one way or the other right that's a definitely a a what it's a cultural thing I'd call it a tribal thing but it doesn't influence anybody's ability to interact with with the quiz and score differently right but if there is some sort of anything related to either rules rulings uh, material types of verses that or sets of verses that would end up with a certain set of type questions related to them, anything along, anything that's going to influence the actual competition itself, then it's like, yeah, that, that needs to be, I, I think every part of that needs to be documented and made available prior to the meet. Otherwise you're setting up a situation where you're potentially causing rookies to come in and feel uh, like they don't actually, they, they couldn't have prepared for something. And that's, 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 I think, countermissional ultimately. Right. And I think it's, you know, we're really talking about those like ways of doing things specifically on the structure and officiating side of it. Um, Cause I know there was a time before the, um, some of the determining reference word or phrase language in the rule book where PNW would evaluate your first provided reference question and kind of have a way of evaluating it. 
um, and then I think it was Western Canada would um, let you provide multiple questions. Um, and we got to the kind of this, I think we got to the same end result where we would kind of rule the same, but we did it in different ways. And if either of us weren't clear about that to those within our district, um, that would be kind of tribal knowledge that um, you wouldn't know as a right? Like if you weren't told and you just showed up in Western Canada and everyone else was providing multiple reference questions and there's nothing in the rule book that says like you necessarily can or you can't, um, I think you'd kind of be at a disadvantage and it wouldn't be a good experience. Um, now, Griffin, how would you think about things that are strategic, right? Like quoting versus backwards when you're answering a chapter verse reference where you are at a disadvantage if you don't know them, but it's not because we've it's hidden from you. Yeah. Right? So it's I'm, kind of like, that's, oh, yeah. So you're talking strategy in terms of like, don't jump on W's. Right. Um, right, it, right. It, it's like, yeah, I don't think that needs to be in the rule book. I think in fact, it's probably better if it's not in the rule book. Uh, it's sort of like the difference between like, if I'm going to go play the game of baseball, I need to know, or, or go play a round of golf. Golf is probably a better example. Um, even though I know, almost nothing about both sports, but let's say I'm going to go play a round of golf. I need to know the rules of golf such that I know how to compete at a practical level. Uh, practical is probably not the right word, but in terms of strategy, that's, you know, hyper different, right? So the, the, do I use a wood here? Do I use a putter on, you know, at, uh, on a tee or something like that? Like these sorts of things are incredibly important for me to know if I want to have any chance of scoring reasonably, but they're, they're not going to be something that's ensconced in the rule book. Right. So let me try to be difficult. Um, <laughs> couldn't both like, wouldn't you say that both are, uh, negatively impact my ability? To, and at that point, what's the difference? Of yeah. And that's totally fair. Right. But there's a difference between things that are born out of experience based on nothing, known rules that I'm not aware of versus a rule or a practice that I'm unaware of that you are aware of. Right. So for example, like, let's say there's a, you know, the, the PGA has a, a rule book, right. Um, a little pamphlet. And let's say you gave me the first half of that rule book, right? Well, I'm, I am at a disadvantage to you because I actually don't know that I'm going to take a two stroke penalty if my ball is in the rough and I move it. Right. Or something like that. Right. Um, I'm just totally making stuff up here. So please super forgive me golf people because I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to golf, but, um, or most sports for that matter. Um, quizzing is a sport. So there is that as well. Sorry, I digress, but there is a, there's a, there's a, a functional difference. Although practically the result can be similar. There is a functional difference between me not knowing certain strategies of how to hit the ball. Whereas you do because of your experience, right? That's different. Right. And it would be similar to like, you know, let's say chess, right? Um, I need to know the rules of chess in full before I play the game of chess, but I cannot possibly know every strategy in chess. Nobody does, right? Even Magnus doesn't know 100% of every strategy, right? There, it, it, it is the, the information that, that can be known is unbounded, right? And so similarly, you could say like in the, in the realm of golf, there are certain strategies and tactics to which are the, the scope of possible knowledge is unbounded. And so therefore somebody who is more experienced will always have a higher 
amount of that knowledge and capability and possibly therefore skill relative to somebody who doesn't have that information. But that doesn't mean that information is codified. I think the rules, the rules of operation need to be codified. Asking a different question, but similar, um, definitely not saying that strategy things need to be codified. But do you think, let's say there are bits of strategy that are known by basically every current competitor. Okay. Um, would you say it is beneficial for an organization to actively tell new participants about those bits of strategy? Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Okay. So, yeah. So, so like, like so for that, example, so... like, like, like I can, I can teach you the basic rules of chess in, I don't know, I, 15 statements or 20 statements or something like, like it's a fairly small amount of stuff. Right. But then beyond that, if I, if I'm going to say like, well, I actually want Scott to enjoy the process of playing chess well now i'm going to actually talk to you about like okay control the center try to develop your pieces there's the you know the the uh opening moves there's the mid game there's the closing game i'm going to talk to you about various different things like pinning and skewering and so forth to give you more i mean you're i'm not going to give you all the strategy because there's that's not possible but i'm i'm definitely going to try to give you if my goal is to get you to be interested in chess i want you to have enough strategy where you start to feel like you can be reasonable at it so you can enjoy enjoy the process so when it comes to quizzing like yeah we've got the rule book we definitely need the rule book and any rule or practice that we do that has implications non-strategic implications and and that's actually not the right way to describe it but any rule of process needs to be codified because otherwise I feel like there was information I didn't have that I should have had, right? It was unfair that you guys are, you know, doing things a particular way and I did I wasn't able to know about it ahead of time, right? Now, then I think it's also useful and beneficial for the mission of quizzing to then have a second document or, or multiple documents uh, that say like, okay, well, let's talk about answering you know, CVRs backwards and here's why you might do, you know, or here's some advice on how you might try studying and memorizing that is, seems to work for, you know, a group of people that way. Right. Um, but those are things where like, I almost want somebody to question that strategy to say like, okay, this is the prevailing strategy and it's probably right. However, there's a chance, let's call it where, you know, 5% of the prevailing opinion on strategy might actually be wrong and or at least wrong in certain very specific ways and by coming up with something innovative that is counter to that strategy i might be able to find an advantage i want people to explore those nooks and crannies of of strategy and try to to dig those out and i guess that would be what i would use as a differentiator between a rule and a strategy sure and i and i agree with everything that you've said but i think it's helpful to call out that when we talk about tribal knowledge that we think should be codified is because both because we think it would be unfair to have it be tribal but also because by codifying it we increase like ease of participation and continued participation um switching gears to strategy type information that maybe everybody knows it's useful to tell new participants this while not codified um to increase participation and foster continued participation right but maybe not from a we might not call it unfair if you're not 
um, if you don't give out those strategies, right? Right. Um, but just because we don't think that they should be codified does not mean we think that they should be actively not communicated. <laughs> right. Right. Abs and 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 really, I think they should be codified, just not in the rule book, right? So, like, I sure. think it would be extremely great to have a, a strategy guide, right? Um, right. And that guide could start to get really, really big, <laughs> really quickly. Um, it may be better if it's just more like article based or something like that. Um, but having those things be codified would be a really good thing, just not in the rule book. So then another part of his question was, um, well, I guess we're still at the beginning. Like, should we try and change some of the framework about quizzing currently functions, like changing the push button quizzing? Um, do we want to attempt to assimilate others into the Bible quizzing culture, which would mean like not changing much, I think is the inference or the, the converse, do we want to adjust how Bible quizzing functions in order to accommodate more? And I think what we think is that since quizzing is dying, not just um, within the CMA, but, but in general, um, most everything should be on the table for change if it increases participation. But at the same time, you also want to pass everything through the lens of what makes Bible quizzing Bible quizzing. And you do want to be somewhat unapologetic about things that you think fit that, right? And assimilate into it. So if we said, we're not going to quiz on the Bible, we're going to memorize the screw tape letters or Tolkien's The Hobbit. Well, you've you've probably changed something that's very fundamental to Bible quizzing, and now it's not Bible quizzing. And even if that results in greater participation, it's not what you would want, right? Whereas something like push button quizzing versus benches, I think that's a, a really a more interesting discussion about you know how critical is it to what makes Bible quizzing Bible quizzing um, versus is this just a hindrance to increased participation, right? Yeah. And I mean, ultimately it's, it's participation is a big deal, but participation is not the mission, right? I think participation is a, an absolutely critical component to the mission, but it's not the mission, right? The mission is get the most number of people to memorize the most number of verses. Uh, so, you know, the first part of that is you, you definitely do need, <laughs> you definitely do need participation to be able to achieve mission, but you have to get them to memorize verses. And so that kind of comes back to this idea of like, well, I think everything needs to be on the table such that it will bring about the outcome of mission. And there is something particularly unique. And I know that's, that's a little on the redundant side, but let's say extremely unique about quizzing. It, it, quizzing is oddly, extremely effective at getting normal kids to memorize massive chunks of scripture that nothing else anywhere that I have ever seen comes even remotely close to doing the same, right? Uh, not even like, like in the same order of magnitude in terms of the number of verses memorized, do I see anything else come close to what, you know, quizzing does on a daily basis, right? And thus doing anything to cause quizzing to not be quizzing necessarily means we're going to lose that effectiveness. We're going to lose out on getting people to memorize scripture uh, as, as, as effectively. Now we won't take it to zero, um, but if we stop being quizzing, what, I guess what I'm defining as quizzing is the method by which we are we are able to be so incredibly effective at memorizing scripture and motivating ourselves and motivating others to, to memorize scripture. But I think 
we need to be realistic to say, well, are there things that we are doing? And the answer, I, obviously, Scott and I think there is yes, there are, there are definitely many things that we are doing and other things that we are also not doing that inhibit maximization of optimization of men, right? So for example, benches versus push button, right? Is it, um, you know, I, th I think everybody universally agrees that benches, when they are set up, is, are unquestionably better than all other forms of, of, of quizzing, right? Uh, in terms of engagement, in terms of all kinds of, of practical factors, right? The problem is there's a massive cost behind them. There's a ma there's there's uh, upkeep costs. There's all kinds of other issues behind the benches, and I think there is a huge hindrance to rolling out quizzing when you talk into unquizzed. You know, uh, call them quizzing deserts, right? Uh, having benches as a requirement to function, or even seats, right, uh, pads on seats is a hindrance that can be removed and we will actually net better toward mission, optimal mission by going to push button, right? Um, at the same time, if we want to turn everything into synonymous meaning, I think ultimately that could be countermissional as well, right? I think there's, um, I forget where I was going with this, but ultimately... I think in when we're talking about each and every component of quizzing, we when I say we want to keep the essential nature of quizzing the same, what I'm talking about is there is a competition, we actually keep score, and the competition is going to be based on predominantly how effectively and how much you have memorized, right? And your your ability to recall that information and recite that. I don't want to turn quizzing into a into a quotathon because I think ultimately that will be less motivational, right? But I think in each of these sort of specifics and in general, looking across the entire program, if we evaluate it based on mission, that's ultimately our goal. Because I mean, in the final analysis, do we really care? I mean, as as nerdy as Scott and I are about quizzing, which is, you know, we're pretty, pretty huge nerds here. But at the end of the day, do we really care um, about quizzing as the practical nerddom that we love or is it more about mission i think it's i think really it's about mission right but it's a really good question because it's not like oh it's an easy answer and it's this one extreme yes exactly and yeah exactly and that's what i love about luke's email uh it's it's a very thought-provoking good things i do want to mention before we move on to the next part of luke's email for quizzing to because i mean scott you said it perfectly quizzing is dying Let, let's be really blunt about this i mean i we've been blunt before but uh quizzing is dying uh and it's not just cma uh cma only has a few more years of life before it implodes um there are other programs that are much bigger than cma much healthier than 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 our program but they're all in decline every program that i have talked to is in decline uh big programs small programs esoteric programs they're all declining and yes a good chunk of that is because of the culture and we are unfortunately uh, inheritors of a broken culture, a broken Christian culture that's been handed down to us. And, and we need to do some things to change that. But ultimately, I think quizzing also is not entirely uh, innocent uh, in, in our, you know, 
in, in our predicament. I think there are certain things that we do that we've grown up with that we kind of like, that we're used to, that we that we enjoy, that actually ultimately become countermissional. We need to define those things, identify those things, and fix those things, and really drive quizzing into thriving again. And I think we do that in a couple of different ways. I think we can optimize quizzing such that it's easy to plant and easy to grow rookie programs in quizzing deserts. I think part of that involves the rule book, but I think a good chunk of that is beyond the rule book, right? So it's things like like those study or not study, the the strategy guides that we were talking about. But a big part of it is evangelism, training, resources, seed money. That plays a huge part. Uh, and simplifying uh, reducing cost to entry, reducing complexity is a is a big thing. All of those kind of fall into this into this big bucket. Agreed. All right. Well, let's move on to the next part of Luke's email. And again, this is Luke does a great job here. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start quoting uh, things. So I'm gonna actually start with um, uh, it was my reply to Luke's email. So this first couple of things here, something that that I wrote, and then I'll then I'll just quote what Luke replies to, and then we'll dig into the into the implications of his questions. So I wrote, I also think we need to pop our CMA bubble which is to say we need to stop being a CMA organization and instead be an ecumenical organization. And we can't do that by just inviting uh, others to join us because they won't. As a thought experiment, consider the reality that CMA quizzing is one of the weaker quiz programs right now. And while we have a handful more years before our main sequence star collapses into a white dwarf, the writing is on the wall. However, we would viscerally reject an invitation to join a different denomination's quizzing program if they blocked us from having an equal voice at the leadership table. We'd also not be terribly happy about having to adopt their rulebook over our own, but we'd especially find the process functionally difficult and frustrating if we discovered only at quiz meets various tribal customs. Okay, so then Luke replies as follows. Merging with other quizzing programs, as you've pointed out, would be tough if we, CMA, didn't have an equal representation in leadership, and especially if we were adopting a very different way of quizzing. I believe the reason why this conversation keeps coming back to the rulebook is this. Assuming every quizzing program, CMA, Nazarene, etc., shares a common goal of making the most kids memorize as much material as possible, evangelism, training, resources, etc., are common needs of all programs. Assuming all these things will become easier upon merging, I believe there are only two things that separate the programs. Number one, denomination, and number two, how quizzing functions a.k.a. the rulebook. I'm not sure how it is in other programs, but in CMA, we've clearly crossed denominational uh, barriers already in terms of the people that are running and attending QuizMe. Therefore, the main hurdle to overcome when merging would be the rulebook. Now, of course, does this mean that the rulebook is the limiting factor in merging growing quizzing? No, definitely not. To your point, evangelism, training, and resources are definitely the top three concerns. However, when you are comparing program to program, the main difference is the rulebook. In order for these concerns to be addressed collectively by the merger of quiz programs, we would need to sort out the rule book first. Okay, so that's a, there's a lot here, and there's a lot of really great thinking on Luke's, Luke's part here. Uh, so Scott, what are, your, what are your thoughts, and how do you want to dig into this? I like how he kind of breaks it down, right, and says, what's the same, what's different, what, what is a hindrance, what's not a hindrance? Because um, I think it makes it I, I agree with just about all of his assumptions, and I think it makes it um, easier to focus on what would be the most impactful. 
There are only two things that separate the programs, denomination, how quizzing functions, which is largely rule book. Um, yeah, I think you might be able to speak more to how denomination are like, you know, are, are a potential, I don't know what, how to describe it, division factor. Um, because I don't know the extent to which different denominations or different groups of people might care about the material version or, you know, some, some denominations say this is the version that we're going to use for every group activity within the denomination. And some denominations just say, we're not making a call. Um, and I, I don't know the extent to which all of those realities would have an impact on Bible quizzing within specific denominations or on multiple denominations joining. Yeah, I mean, so I don't I don't agree with Luke when he says I believe there are only two things that separate the programs, number one denomination and number two how quizzing functions. Um and 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 when he says how quizzing functions, he's basically saying otherwise known as the rule book, right? So essentially, let's just say denomination and rule book. Rule book meaning how we actually what are the rules to actually run a quiz me, you know, that kind of that kind of I think there's more to it than that. I think number 3 is the organizational structure and the work that the organization does in quizzing, right? Which is not synonymous with denomination, right? I think it's, I think there's, there's, there's a different, uh, differentness there, right? So Nazarene, I'll, I'll, I'll point out Nazarene is a great example. Nazarene gets a significantly, uh, how to say this, the Nazarene denomination cares about quizzing to a significant degree that I don't see existing similarly in CMA. And that's something that is definitely a denominational difference between those two programs. The Nazarene denomination at the denominational church leadership level cares about quizzing and invests non-trivially in, in Bible quizzing. And that's a wonderful thing. And I applaud them for doing so, but that's different than what I'm talking about and, 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 and this is not to say that it's not an important thing. I think it is a very important thing. It's one of the reasons why the Nazarene program is the strongest program out there right now and is also probably going to be the one that dies last, right? It's because they have tremendous denominational support. Um, but I'm talking about within a given program itself, how is that program evangelizing? How is it uh, advancing quizzing? Is it doing quiz district planting, you know, synonymous with like church planting, these sorts of things? I would not necessarily expect the denomination to do that, although they, although they certainly could, right? But it's something that goes beyond the denomination. There's also things like like how quizzing functions with regard to the rule book, but then there are other things that I think that are motivational, encouraging for to, to uh, that that help promote the mission that are not part of the rule book. So, for example, uh, having dedicated opportunities of time during a quiz meet sequence, right? Whatever that happens to mean, whether it's you know you're just doing a you know a two day quiz meet, a five day quiz meet, whatever, having time set aside for fellowship and interactions and fun and games and these sorts of things um that is very motivational so like for example uh great west great west we don't have a lot of opportunity to fellowship with other teams except for the saturday evening at the great west meet itself um and that there is a part of that time that we have up at crow's nest that gets set aside for that fellowship that's something beyond the rule book 
it and it's something very important in terms of a motivating factor like i talk to quizzers who tell me like yeah i'm really looking forward to staying up all night long or till two in the morning or whatever time frame it happens to be there are um and then for pna or pnw and I'm sure this is the case for the other districts as well. Uh, CMD probably even more so because I think their road trip is longer than ours. Um, but like the road trip itself is incredibly fun it, and it's motivational. It's something that goes beyond the rule book, right? So I'm not saying this is the extent of, of this bucket, but there is this bucket of things of how we structure a quizzing universe, a season, a program and beyond that is beyond the rule book that actually has tremendous implications toward mission. The other thing is like evangelism. Another way of, of saying evangelism, you know, in the secular world is advertising and marketing. How are we advertising and marketing quizzing to the unquizzed, right? Uh, we talk about quizzing to the quizzed and we do a pretty decent job of that. But if we're really wanting to grow, we need to reach out into quizzing deserts. How are we doing that? How effective are we doing? And that's something that I mean, that's beyond the denomination. It's beyond the rule book. So I'm just I'm just pointing out like like the rule book is important. And and as a as a you know, I'm I'm an inside quizzing nerd. Scott is an inside quizzing nerd. We love talking about the rule book, but I caution us to put too much focus on the rule book. I think the rule book absolutely needs to get blown up and and start from first principles and build something that we are confident that every part of this is focused on you know, a, a pro mission, right? Getting evangelizing quizzing and growing quizzing and getting more people to memorize more verses and so forth. But that to me, it, it, in a scientific study I just made up in my head feels like it's less than 20% of the overall work that needs to happen. So here's some questions. Do you think CMA quizzing can survive, um, apart from other denominations? At this point, no. I think 10 years ago, the answer would have been yes. I think, I think if CMA quizzing decided to really get aggressive about optimizing for mission 10 years ago, I think CMA quizzing could have survived on its own. I think at this point, um, the ship has sailed. Are there enough things to do to save CMA quizzing without, I mean, I guess my question is like, if the rule book and current state of it prevents joining with any other denomination, then who cares if there's other useful things that can be done? Say that a different way. I'm not sure I'm totally following you. If, if CMA quizzing is dead without joining with other denominations, then does it really matter how much good, better we, we get at marketing if the current state of the rulebook prevents joining with other, other denominations? I think, I think it does because ultimately CMA merging with another program doesn't actually save quizzing, right? So I, I, this is a, I, I was, a, I forget who it was. I think it was Charles, a um, uh, couple, it was pre-COVID, I think. No, maybe it was. I don't remember. It was, it was a couple of years ago. I'm, I met with uh, somebody who is uh, in the Pacific Northwest Free Methodist program, and we had a great uh, lengthy conversation about our different programs and, and mission and all that kind of stuff. And it was fantastic. And um uh, he asked the question like, well, okay, if all we're talking about is taking, let's say, CMA PNW and Free Methodist PNW and merging these two together, and let's, you know, forget all of the the very big questions of how on earth would that even work? But l let's say we could somehow magically make it work. Does the merging of us, our two organizations actually do anything? And it's like, well, no, 
it the, the really the only thing it does is it delays the inevitable right it it gets us to where we were it gets us together as one unit where either one of us were say 10 or 15 years um and i think the same can be said for any of these programs i think ultimately there's a certain economies there are certain economies of scale that you can leverage when you are larger that you can't when you're smaller and it, it becomes extremely costly from a from a an effort perspective when when you're fragmented and small but just dealing with those economies of scale doesn't actually save us we have to do everything in this this smorgasbord bucket of stuff right so getting getting away from the denominationalism Improving the rule book, absolutely, that's one of the things. But again, like I said, you know, I feel like it's really only 20%. Um, merging with other programs, multi-translational is a is a is a is a big functional component of of and granted that's part that would be part of making a new rule book for this new universe, right? But a lot of this also uh, is around making the meets and the process of going to and coming from a meet engaging to quizzers uh, potential quizzers non-quiz where they are and to say that seems fun that seems interesting i want to get involved with that right lowering the barriers to entry i mean there's this it's it goes far beyond just uh just a rule book okay so this might be yak shaving but here are two scenarios and the question is under which scenario does cma quizzing die quicker <laughs> okay scenario a is we get real good at marketing, um, but do not join with any denial. And scenario B is we change whatever's necessary in the rule book or the structure to join with other denominations, but change absolutely nothing about marketing. Oh, interesting. Okay, and and it's the how do we how do we stop death or how well actually so in the, in, the in specific I... question is under which scenario does CMA quizzing die quicker? I'm not asking under which scenario does it survive. Right. Like that, that is the same question. Um, well, yeah, because in both A and B, I think it still dies. Um, I think sure. B is variant because B, it, B, B depends on who we merge with, right? So if CMA, so for example, let's say, let's say CMA is able to merge with another program. If we merge with Free Methodist program, that buys us a certain number of years, right? And I don't know exactly how much that would be, but let's say it buys us mm, 10 years. I don't know. I bet that who knows if that's accurate, but let's just say it's 10, right? Then if we, but, but let's say we don't merge with, with Free Methodist and instead we merge with Nazarene, I think that gives us 15 years, uh, maybe even more, right? But let's say 15, right? So and the reason is simply because Nazarene is bigger than Free Methodist, right? Um, therefore, the I, but I think ultimately what it does is it just means we're merging, we're able to survive at a with our economies of scale a little bit longer, and therefore the more merging we can do, and the bigger the programs are that we merge with, the longer quizzing can survive as a result of that. But ultimately, it's going to die no matter what. And I would probably agree with that, but it's it seems to me to make sense to buy yourself as much time as you can, um, knowing that the buying of time is not. Oh yeah, totally agreed. Right. But like, I want to do, I, I, I want to buy us time, but I also want us to do all the things, right? So like, I want to do advertising, marketing and sales, quote unquote, right. Get people to, to, to sign up for quizzing. Right. 
um, I want to do advertising, marketing, and sales, and I want to merge with other programs, and I want to make uh, quizzing way more accessible, and I want to make it cheaper, and I want to turn it into way more mainstream, and I want to make the meets more fun, and, 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 right? I want to have more resources for coaches and for parents. I want to be able to set up ways of being able to put together informal study groups. Uh, you know, the, you know, kids being able to memorize with other kids, and we, we have the ability to do things like on Zoom where, you know, uh, a kid in one locale can start memorizing and studying with a kid in another locale. And I know that doesn't work for everybody. Right. But, but, um, so for me, I would be much more capable of memorizing if I was just in a closet by myself, you know, kind of stuff for an hour at a time or whatever, but, but everybody's different. And for people who memorize more effectively when they have an accountability partner, you know, to be able to set those sorts of things up, I think is going to be useful to provide more resources to coaches, to be able to provide them strategies, to be able to provide them assistance when they need it. Um, all of these sorts of things need to come into play so that we can save save quizzing. And I mean, do we need every single one of those things? Probably not. And so it's a question of finding, like, what are the things that are absolutely critical? I think merging is absolutely critical. I think de-denominationalizing is critical. I think coming up with um, going multi-translational, I think, is really important. Um, and a few other things, lowering the bar, to, the barrier to entry, uh, lowering, making it easier for a rookie to get their first question, I think is a valuable thing to pursue. But then, like, I really want to see marketing and advertising and sales uh, as well and turning quizzing into mainstream. I think that's where we, we turn something from just saving quizzing into growing quizzing. Sure, but... I mean, I think it's it's useful to assume either limited time, limited resources, or both. Sure. And if joining with a de another denomination, almost regardless of size, is the easiest way to buy time in the short term, if rulebook is an impediment to that, it seems like that's your focus because otherwise you may you may not get a chance to do any marketing. Yeah, but it's not just the rulebook that's the merger, right? So let, let's take let's go to to you know Luke's point about. Um, you know, he was talking about in CMA, we've we've crossed denominational barriers already. And I, I think like, no, I don't think we have. Now, of course, he... Uh, he's had, meaning something specific by yeah, it. He's, he's meaning right. something specific about it in terms of, you know, people that are running and attending quiz meets. He's, he's right when, when you limit it to that scope. But the problem is when you don't limit it to that scope, we're nowhere near that as being true. And that's the, that's the issue that comes into play with merging, right? So like in CMA, we've cl clearly crossed the denominational barriers already. If you're talking about leadership, the answer is no. The CQLT forbids more than two of the six to be from non-CMA and non-CMA are prevented from being chair. That has to go away if we're going to have any hope of merging CMA with anybody or anybody with CMA, right? Um, that just has to end, right? And there are similar structures in other denominational programs. Some of them are a little bit more ecumenical than others, uh, and some of them are wildly ecumenical, um, and my hat's off to them for being so. 
But ultimately, any of those barriers that exist there need to go away for a program to truly be mergeable, right? And that's something that's way beyond the rule book. That's, that's truly into, you know, you're talking about bylaws at that point. You know, how do you ensure that people who are participating in quizzing, who are volunteering in quizzing, who are running meets, who are in leadership in, some, in various different ways, um, coaching, officiating, meet direction, district you know, officiate or not officiate district um, administration or whatnot. How do you ensure that their voices are heard and uh, and heard fairly and equally, and that everyone has an equal you know shot at the table and opportunity at the table in a way that that preserves quizzing? You're you're talking about bylaws, right? At that point, you're talking about articles of incorporation, and you're talking about things that are beyond uh, the rule book. Because I I I mean. None of that should have, there's no reason a quizzer should care about any of that stuff, but there's definitely reasons why coaches care about that. Right. And I'm definitely not as hooked into this as you are, but I think I'm trying to push you towards the, um, maybe it's inefficient to spend any time thinking about, uh, marketing at this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. You know, in terms of orders of operation, sure. Like, you know, one person can't do all of these, whatever I've listed, like probably 12 different things. Yeah, absolutely. One person can't do all 12 things simultaneously. Um, you, you have to do one thing at a time. But again, this also goes down to why economies of scale are so valuable, because if you can get a, out of a group of 100 people, maybe there are two or three who would be particularly interested in any one of those bucket of 12 things. If you can get a group of 1,000 people, you've just 10xed your volunteer pool for people who might work on a particular aspect of those 12 things, right? Or one of those 12 things. Um, and so, like, yeah, I want to merge so that I can actually have because I, I mean let's be really blunt here i'm not very good at evangelism i'm not very good at marketing or sales or any of that kind of stuff i need somebody to help me <laughs> and so um but i think the best way to get somebody to help me is to constantly plead for somebody to help me and constantly grow the pool of people to whom i can make those requests sure which sounds to me like you're making a case for doing whatever you can to join with other denominations yeah sure sure and and that's and that's very true and part of it is also even prior to joining other denominations or merging with other other denominations it's extending the olive branch to other denominations to you know to shake hands with other leaders to build relationships and to be able to support each other right so during covid we had a um we had a couple of nazarene teams join uh the 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 cma uh our, our pnw uh district because for a while nazarene had to shut down um and ultimately um, I actually worked with a couple of, of leaders in Nazarene to help them get virtual quizzing uh, going. And so the second year around, they they ran virtual in Nazarene, or my understanding is they, they, they operated virtual in Nazarene before they were able to meet back in person again. And, um, you know, that was one of those things where I was able to, I, I, I was able to, I had relationships with people in Nazarene. I was able to then help them. And it's like, okay, their mission is the same mission as mine. So I want to, I want to help them in that regard. So I think, I think we can do those sorts of bridge building things both prior to merger. And then certainly after the merger, it would be great, but there's, yeah, there's like, I don't know, four, five, six different things that all have to happen simultaneously for this thing to work. Right. And I think one of the clearest messages is if you also agree that 
some amount of cross-denomination quizzing is necessary for the survival of quizzing, then you have to be ready to give up things like adherence to your pet translation or only CMA representation on a governing body or even majority CMA representation on a governing body, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here's what it really comes down to. The the painful truth um, is that we have to give up our darlings if we want to survive. Um, the, The house is on fire and we can't, you know, pack a suitcase before we evacuate like um we need you know we need to these are terrible analogies sorry about this but we need to we need to do things now and we need to be willing to give up our little pet specific things that we love or hate uh we need to be able to give up control so that we have something that survive uh the the appending collapse of the supernova and on that bombshell (laughs) right that's a pretty big bombshell i mean yeah so let me wrap up one thing i think so what's the name of the podcast right we're inside quizzing scott is a nerd i'm a nerd now the awesome thing about scott is he's a different nerd than than i am um but we're both nerds and we approach i you know quizzing from a very nerd you know perspective and we love nerdy complexities right i mean the whole what first 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever of this episode was was pretty nerdy um and you know i kind of like that which is why we call this podcast the inside quizzing podcast right but quizzing is not going to grow as a whole if it focuses on the nerdy complexity right um I love quizzing nerds, but most people are not quizzing nerds. And we need to grow quizzing by reaching out to people who are unquizzed and non-nerdy and who will never be nerdy. And that's okay. We need to accept them as God created them in their non-nerd status, right? Um, And so that's why I want to kind of, I get, while I love diving into the rule book and being nerdy about the rule book, I want to take a... I want to force us to have a much bigger vision than, and, and to say like there, there's many more other things that we need to deal with. Right. Um, all that said, individuals, individual rules in the rule book do not exist in a vacuum. They, they exist in a tapestry of rules. And so when you tug on any one rule, there are going to, there are going to be ripple effects and there are going to be third and fourth order effects to those, those changes. And so, I think it behooves people who are considering rules debates to consider those multi-order effects, right? Um, oftentimes, and I, I lately over the last, I don't know, couple, couple, three weeks or so, I have been reading current and very old rule books from all kinds of different programs from, uh, you know, obviously Nazarene Free Methodist and, and you know, C- old CMA rule books, but I've been reviewing rule books from all kinds of denominations with acronyms that I barely remember uh, anymore. I've been reviewing a rule book from a group that only memorizes in the original KJV, not even, uh, they're, they're not okay with even uh, New King James. And so I've been reviewing their rules as well. And I, I, going through and, and spotting different things and looking at similarities and so forth. And what I find really interesting when I'm looking at this stuff and I'm looking at rule books that have undergone changes over time, that's, that's very informative to me because it's, it's almost like a language that changes over time, uh, over the generations. I can look at these rule books and say like, oh, that's interesting. They didn't, they didn't have this rule and now they do. And then I can see the sequence of changes and ripple effects of other rules that they've implemented because of this first rule and so forth. What I've noticed is that when we, we, as in 
you know, the broader quizzing community, when we add new rules, oftentimes the multi-order effects of those new rules aren't deeply considered. But then later we consider revoking the hastily added new rules as uh a higher bar than, or how to describe this? We, we will hastily add a little rule here that ends up having ripple effects and, and multi-order effects that we didn't consider. And then when we are when we are faced with the implications of that hastily constructed rule or implemented rule, we actually hold on to that rule because it it it, it, it now has become the status quo. And it takes more energy to revoke it than to add it originally, right? Um, so ulti- anyway, I'm, I'm di- digging in the weeds here. The bottom line here is I want to encourage us all to look at the big picture. Um, what's going to cause quizzing to grow? If we optimize for Scott and me, I think quizzing will ultimately shrink. Um, because ultimately it'll just be populated with people that look like Scott and me, um, which is cool because Scott and I are cool people and we're nerds and we like talking with other nerds, but I think quizzing has to grow and can only grow if we expand beyond the realm of nerd. How's that for a diatribe? I think that we have more topics now for a future episode, right? (laughs) Because I would agree that if you just let your one percenter nerds run Bible quizzing, it, it probably won't survive. But I also don't know like specifically what roles or in general how to get the non one percenters to be um you know consistent volunteers. And yeah. I, I don't mean consistent like volunteers are inconsistent now, but it's like it's much it, it's harder to get people to show to um volunteer in the first place if they're not some amount of quizzing nerds. Right, indeed. Right. And and it, it's a useful thing because like I absolutely agree. Like if you just let me go crazy on the rule book, it the competition becomes better for quizzers like me, but the program as a whole probably suffers. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's I think that's the big thing that I want to caution people around is um we need to do more than the rule book, but we do definitely need to do more rule book. And in doing so, we need to incorporate more voices than just the um, and I say this as a nerd, um, but yeah, I guess the, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about more of this on the next episode. So, all right. With that, all that, uh, being said, uh, I do want to remind everybody that, uh, you should be like Luke, everybody be like Luke and email us. You can email us at IQ at CQZ.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at inside quizzing and you can chat with us in kind of sort of almost near real time on the inside quizzing Slack channel. And with that, I will say, Adieu to you all, and thank you, Scott. Thanks to everyone. Thanks, Griffin. Thanks, Griffin.